Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. Today I'm joined by regular guest Tim Hughes, a Brisbane-based businessman from Urban Ergo. Today, Tim and I are going to be speaking about what economists do. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Gene. Good to be here, mate. Excellent, Tim. Really glad to have you here. So we've known each other for many years now, and you know, I often talk about the sort of things I do, the diff- different projects I do, and I thought it might be useful for ha- us to have a conversation about what economists do, because economists do all lots of different things. It's the big question, Gene. <laughs> the big question. What exactly is it you guys do? <laughs> exactly. So I thought we could have a, a conversation about that today, and I hope that for you and the audience, this will be interesting as it will give you some insight into the role of economists in society. So this job of being an economist, this is something that came to prominence probably after the Second World War, so coming out of the Great Depression. Much more demand for economists since then. And it was when I studied economics, it uh, it was quite fashionable. This was back in the the 90s when I first started studying economics. And in Australia, we had all of the the economic change in the 80s. You, you were here in the 80s. I was Tim, here in 1981 yeah. or two. I came over. 82, yeah. Yes. So you, you'd remember all of the debates we had about the need to reform the economy and the current account deficit and microeconomic yeah, the, reform. The end of um, Malcolm Fraser and the start of Bob Hawke and then Paul Keating and, yeah, interesting times. Yes, and that's essentially when I became interested in economics. So growing up in the 80s and watching Terry McCran and Michael Pascoe on Business Sunday, which was a TV show here in Australia. <laughs> I have to say I didn't watch that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I became very interested in these economic issues. And, and so I thought, well, economics will be something interesting to study with law. So I studied them both. And I, I ended up finding that economics was dealing with really big issues, really important issues, issues both domestically but also internationally. Yeah. A lot of the – well, we were just watching the uh, – the campaign launch or Donald Trump accepting the presidential nomination just a few moments ago. We were, yeah. Yes. Yes, and there are a lot there are a lot of economic issues being raised by Donald Trump and his criticism of Biden is that Biden agreed to these trade deals such as NAFTA and that's meant that jobs have gone offshore. So American manufacturing jobs have gone. Yeah. They've gone to NAFTA. And also he was talking about China, that there's this uh, allegation that previous administrations weren't tough enough on China. And so the US lost jobs to China. And he's saying, well, I'm, go- I'm bringing them all back. So with this, I mean, so I represent the guy on the street, basically, in, in these conversations, which is, um, which is where I... Put myself <laughs> in the world of economics. 
So for instance, um, for myself, and I'd like to get your view on this, like, um, yeah, that was from uh, Trump's uh, acceptance for being the uh, Republican uh, candidate for this, or the, the, you know, their candidate for the, the re-election. So anything that uh, any, either of any party puts up in any election campaign needs to be cross-checked as far as I'm concerned. So like, I'm, I'm a big fan of the ABC, in, in, in Australia this is, the ABC fact check. I think that's a really good thing because ultimately at the end of the day, you don't often get to hear both sides of the coin. And um, so from your experience with, because I don't know about those things you just mentioned about, um, is he being truthful in what he said? Partly he's been truthful. I mean, there's no doubt that Joe Biden supported those trade deals Mm -hmm. and there's no doubt that those trade deals, well, NAFTA in particular, led to the relocation of many manufacturing jobs from the US to Mexico because it's cheaper to to manufacture in Mexico. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this one in particular, this, this, this one thing, but how long ago was that? That would have been the mid-90s. It was yep. during the Clinton administration. Yeah. Right. And so lots of U.S. companies ended up relocating jobs to Mexico. So I know, for example, that Shure, which is a major microphone manufacturer, yep. I've got some of their microphones, and they manufacture that really famous SM7B microphone that Joe Rogan uses. Yeah. They're manufactured in Mexico now. That's M58 as well, isn't it? That's like a standard industry standard, the M58. The SM58, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I've got a couple of those, yeah. 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 And I guess where I'm going with this is economists get involved in those issues because economists are great. Well, economists generally favour trade agreements. They generally favour free trade because they see the benefits to free trade and US consumers they're going to be ben- they will benefit from free trade agreements such as NAFTA yeah they will get cheaper goods the downside is that you could lose some manufacturing jobs and the problem in the US I think is that because they don't have the social security system that we have in Australia or in Western Europe yeah if you lose your job in the US, you're in a whole world of trouble. So that's the fundamental problem. So you end up with all these people in middle America who've lost their jobs and lose hope and get addicted to painkillers or whatever it is or drugs, just awful. So they have a welfare system as such, but um, the um, health system is, I mean, growing up in England um, with the uh, NHS, which always gets, you know, a uh, bagged as being not very good etc but hands down is a is a terrific thing as a, as a base um delivery of of you know pretty good health services uh, and the same in australia with medicare like it's uh it, it feels it would feel very strange to go into a, a country that didn't have that and understanding obviously there are many countries that don't but it's a real um advantage and privilege to have it and i like living in countries that provide that to everybody i think it's a really good thing absolutely so getting back to the getting onto the topic of today's conversation why that's relevant that conversation is relevant is because economists would have been advising the president to at the time who was bill clinton 
to go into NAFTA. Yeah. And it would have been economists such as Larry Summers. Actually, actually, I'll have to check whether Larry Summers was in the administration that time. But you have economists who act as advisors to government. So that's a major role of economists. Yeah. So I used to work for the Treasury here in Australia. Yeah. The Treasury is the central – that's the main economic ministry, the main agency for economic affairs within yeah. Australia. It formulates the federal budget – it provides advice on macroeconomic policy and it regulates markets. So on macroeconomic policy, for example, the JobKeeper we have in Australia, the wage subsidy, the $1,500 a fortnight, yep. if you're a business that's had turnover loss of 30% or whatever it was, that was designed by former colleagues of mine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so my old boss, Stephen, well... He was one of the senior people in Treasury at the time, Stephen Kennedy, who's the current Treasury Secretary. He was on my selection panel when I got into Treasury. He's the one who had to own up to the, uh, the $60 billion forecasting error on the JobKeeper. So that's the sort of thing yeah, yeah. which was bad luck, but that's, the, that's a challenge. That's a problem when you're doing things very quickly. And they had to design that, I think, within a week or something because – they be figured, a bigger problem if it was the other way for sure. Like if it had been, if it was going to cost an extra sixty billion, that would have been more problematic for sure. That's right. So it was actually good news. <laughs> <Great>. so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one role for economists: is working within government agencies and providing advice on how the economy is performing, what your budget should be, what it should look like. like What's, what, should you be targeting a surplus or a deficit? So uh, uh, just a quick question on that sort of thing. Uh, so modelling, um, I imagine, is a big part of what you do. So uh, is, is the, um, obviously, interpretations of what's happened in the past can um, affect predictions of what might happen in the future, I guess. So is that where the um, different opinions would come out on, you know, from different economists, uh, I, I imagine that very much so it's looked to historical figures as to what's happened, as to what might happen in the future. Is that the case? Yes. I better make sure I understand what you're asking, but you look generally you're looking at how economies have moved over the past. So you'd look at historical relationships yeah. between economic growth and inflation and unemployment what the and you'd also look at well leading indicators such as building approvals say business confidence indexes and what ends up happening now this is i can introduce some other economists out there because there are economists who work for banks for example you'll often see people like well this is we're in australia so bill evans who's chief economist at westpac he'll often be on the news or uh, Shane Elliott at ANZ, if I remember correctly, and they'll be commenting on the economy and they'll be providing their forecasts. And so what normally happens is there's a lot of public discussion about how the economy's evolving. Yeah. And so you'll end up almost with this, this consensus about the outlook of the economy based on the data that come out and our understanding of how 
the economy evolves over time. We know there's a, a business cycle, for example. Yeah. We know that if you've got a colossal boom, for example, that's going to be followed by a bust sometime, but it's always very challenging forecasting that. Yeah. And we know that it's at least you know it's not going to continue forever. It, things just can't keep going at a very high rate of growth. So you'd, in the future, you'd be assuming that it would come off. Yeah. Likewise, if you're in a recession, as we are now, you'd have to assume that at some time in the future we'll get out of it. Yeah, yeah. So does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah, so I mean, I guess it's like everything, um, whatever, you know, because we all make predictions for the future um, every day at some level. Um, so, and we, we draw on our past experience to make those predictions as accurate as possible. So I was, uh, I, I guess, um, so with economists, um, because I can see how they work uh, on a government level, like a federal level and a state level, um, how do you guys um, apply yourself to commerce, you know, to individual businesses? Okay, so there are a few examples I can give. I would like to go back to a point relating to the discussion of working in government. Yeah. If we can do that first, could I, we might park that question if that's okay because there's something I want to say before I forget about it. The reason economists are important within government is because the state of the budget, the ability to finance public services depends so critically on the the economy, on the size of the economy. Yeah. And what's extraordinary is that until the 1930s, we really didn't have a good understanding of how large the economy was, so what the GDP, the gross domestic product of the economy was. And it was people like Colin Clark, who spent a lot of time in Queensland, incidentally, and who helped John Maynard Keynes, who, who worked with him, the great British economist, yeah. and worked at the Treasury. He developed estimates in the 30s of the national income it's important to know that because that tells that gives you an idea of what the government's going to raise in taxes with particular tax policy settings. Yeah, okay. It gives you an idea of what you, you know, what your budget surplus or deficit will be. And so economists are important in in quantifying the size of the economy. Well, the ABS the, or the ON, the Office for National Statistics in the UK does that or the yeah the BEA in the US, the Bureau of Economic Affairs, I think it is, or analysis. But economists uh, are important in predicting those budget aggregates based on how the economy is performing, and that's a major role. Also assessing policies, so looking at economic impacts of particular yeah. policies, how many jobs might be created by a new mine, for example, or that sort of thing, whether something's good value for money, a particular investment. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But let's go to back. Let's go to your question on the private sector because it's a good one. Actually, um, be before you answer it, Gene, I just want to um, sort of uh, point out this. There was a really cool part in um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams where there was a, a planet who had um, banished all of the telephone sanitizers to a different planet because they were deemed to be unuseful and 
no good <laughs> no, not of any great use to um to the planet and they, they were sent away with a third of the population of other people who were deemed unnecessary um and uh ironically the the planet who banished those telephone sanitizers then contracted some virus from a dirty telephone and, and died out uh so my question to you when, when you answer this one about how economists apply themselves to uh commerce is um are, how you would um, justify your position as not being one of those telephone sanitizers. And I say that with great respect. I obviously know that you're not, but <laughs> I'll, I'll put it to you to, to see. Um, I mean, and, and I, I'm saying this obviously jokingly, but uh, it, it seems to be like an invisible um, sort of uh, uh, occupation, if you like. So the, the guy on the street, myself, say for instance, um, uh, we know, undoubtedly have the impact of uh you know what economists do and what they the spheres that they work in so how does that uh, ha- i'll let you answer your question towards how you guys work with um, commerce okay that's a good question tim respectfully <laughs> <laughs> credit for the reference to uh, hitchhiker's Thank guide you. to the galaxy Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay where do we begin there with commerce, so with industry, economists are called in for a variety of different projects or different consultancies. So I work as a consulting economist, so I work yeah. quite a bit with industry. Mm-hmm. Also work with government agencies and with non-profits. With industry, you're often called upon to provide advice or provide an analysis or a feasibility study because they might need to get – it's often where they need to get a tick yeah. from the government, from a government agency. So this is why the demand for economists surged after the war because the government became a much larger part of the economy. So we've gone from a situation prior to the Second World War where government was probably about 10% of the economy. Now, in Australia, it's 35 36% of the economy. It's around a third of the economy. The US is very similar. UK is a bit higher, I think, because of, well, NHS, for example. Yeah. In some European countries, it's up around 45 nearly 50%. Wow. Government has a much larger role in the economy. It regulates more. If you want to get a major project built, so you look at Adani, for example, and it had to get its, all of its approvals for the Carmichael mine, and part of its case is how many jobs are being created, how much yeah. value added, how many dollars it's adding to the economy. And so if you want to quantify that and do it in a credible way, you'll need economists to do that. So there's a demand for that. That's one example. Yeah. There's also the demand from, from banks for economic advice. Because even though markets and from banks and hedge funds and anyone involved in financial markets, because even though markets can be crazy and on any one day they can just do something that no one understands, we'd like to think that ultimately fundamental economic factors determine the the markets or they influence the markets. And so economists are going to be in demand from 
from banks within and hedge funds and to provide advice on how the economy is, uh, how it's likely to evolve, what's going to happen to interest rates, what's going to happen to exchange rates, what's going to happen to the stock market, that sort of thing. So there's a demand there. Another area where there's a demand, and this is this relates to the the point about uh, the fact that government is just so large now. There are a lot of businesses out there that are regulated regarding what prices they can charge or how much revenue they can earn. Yeah. Businesses such as the Energy Queensland distributor of electricity here in Queensland. So they own the poles and wires and they can, because they've got a monopoly, right? Yeah. If you just let them charge whatever they wanted, they could just really jack the price up. So there's economic regulation applied to them. There's also economic regulation applied to some ports and uh, what else, some rail lines, for example. So Horizon, which is the company that that owns uh, the profitable rail lines in yeah. central Queensland. This is big infrastructure kind of businesses then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you, utility businesses, infrastructure businesses, there's often economic regulation applied to them. Okay. And there'll be a process in Queensland – where Tim and I are recording, there's a body called the Queensland Competition Authority, which does some of this regulation nationally. There's the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. There's the Australian Energy Regulator. In the UK, there's Offwat, the Office of Water, or Ofcom, the Office of Communications. And these bodies have regulatory processes that the businesses have to contribute to. So the businesses will come to the regulator and they will say, because we need to spend this much money delivering these services at this quality, this level of service, and we need to earn this rate of return, you should let us make this much money and charge this much for the services. And there'll be a process, there'll be a process whereby the regulator reviews that. And so the regulator itself will have economists reviewing the, the submissions and the businesses, so it could be, say, the rail company, they will, the Horizon, for example, they will have their own economists who are providing analysis that supports their submission. Yeah. Or they, they use their analysis for their submission. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And like, uh, um, I mean, that, that's big infrastructure kind of things, which um, uh, there's a couple of things with it. So the other, one, of, one of the things I was going to say with that was like how that might supply, uh, apply rather to a company that makes widgets, you know, and then, you know, uh, say Apple, you know, so big widgets. Uh, they would have economists advise them on certain things. And also I imagine that it's the same as having um, – a defence lawyer or a prosecution lawyer where you use information available to put a case forward. And so obviously, you know, knowing how figures can be used. And I'm, 
you know, just saying this is like human nature that people have a bias towards what they want to happen. So is that the same with economists? That uh, you know, do you have to uh, sort of like, um, do you find that like you're competing um, with the economists on another side who are advising someone else who might be trying to uh, undermine or be uh, giving an opposite picture or a, a differing picture to what you're putting forward? Is that is that uh, that kind of thing happen? Often you do have economists on different sides of arguments. Mm. I'd like to think they're not being mercenary and just providing the advice that the client wants to hear. They might have different perspectives or, or have access to different information. But, yes, that does occur. It often occurs in uh, cases where... There might be a development proposed and so say there's often, there are often disputes about whether a new business can open in a particular area or a new shopping centre can open in a particular area yeah. and you might have economists who are working for the developer who based on their conversations with the developer and information provided by the developer, they might have formulated a view about how know, the, the benefits to this region of having that shopping centre create this many jobs. On the other side, you might have, you might have the, the, an existing shopping centre there. They might engage an economist who's going to, who based on the information they're getting from that shopping centre and their own analysis, they might, be, they might have formed a view that this new shopping centre It'll just take jobs away from this existing shopping centre, and there'll be a debate on that. And so, what often happens is there there could be some tribunal or a planning court, for example, and then yeah. the the different economists will have to get together. Well, they, actually, getting together comes later. I'll talk about that in a moment. They will have to act as expert witnesses in that process. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess it's a. I mean, this isn't just uh, um, in the world of economy either, but in every level, um, there's confirmation bias that we all have, whether we're aware of it or not. And um, it is a well, you know, without sounding too naive, because I mean, it's clearly a problem. Uh, but that's it's been the same <laughs> since forever. However, I think um, it's still a worthy um, a worthy thing to try and mitigate or minimise the amount of confirmation bias to make a better decision for all involved. Absolutely. So what ends up happening, and this is, I've heard this from a colleague of mine who's been involved in this, these processes, what can end up happening is that the, the courts realise that the best outcome is going to come from a combination of views. It's probably not going to be the view of the proponent or the people opposing. And what they they will do occasionally, and I've heard that this occurs, is that they will say, look, you both get together and engage some other experts and come to a consensus view on what demand for this new shopping centre really is. So they might bring in some other experts. Yeah. Or well, they'll sit down and try and thrash it out, or come to some sort of agreement. Yeah, uh, and I guess uh, that um, 
Uh, again, it's just how it all goes. Like if, if somebody is pro something and somebody's trying to defend something, well, that's that's their job as well, I guess, is to put the best case forward for um, who's employing them, who's paying the coin. You know, so um, I, I get that that's just the way the world works. <laughs> I guess if you're an advisor to these businesses, then, I mean, you need to make sure you've got a credible case and the the evidence does exist. Yeah. And sometimes it comes from a, a particular a view of the world and so you may you just have to acknowledge, well, okay, we've accepted this view of this proponent that or we've accepted their data or yeah. there there are forecasts you might have to rely on from the the proponent of a project for you know, how many visitors it might get, how many people might be attracted to a particular tourism development or yeah. something. Yeah. So um, just a quick question, Jim, because um, you talk about feasibility studies and that kind of thing. So would you get involved in a new product using Apple again as an example as, um, you know, obviously a, a very big company? Um, would economists get involved in, in that kind of uh, new product launch? It depends on the product or service, Tim. Telephone cleaning. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure about Apple, but Google has had, they may still have a chief economist, and that was Helvarian, who's a famous US economist. Yeah. And he's provided advice to them on how they would design their, their, their auctions for ad revenue, if I remember correctly. So he's had a major influence at Google. It's less clear to me what an economist could do at Apple and whether they'd have an in-house economist who'd be telling them how the economy's evolving because no doubt that would affect their their sales and yeah. possibly costs of inputs. I mean, it's possible they do, but they or they could just rely upon what they hear, you know, the, all the forecasts offered by the, mar- the market economists and commentators. I'm not sure about Apple. Yeah. But there's certainly roles for economists in different companies depending on the company and what they need analysis of. Halvarian's a good example. I'll try to put some uh, some links in the show notes to the types of things he's done. Would it, would it be fair to say that, um, that an economist um, helps provide a, a better choice in making a decision as to what might happen in the future? So it's in some way predicting an outcome. Yes, that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's to help inform decisions. That's right. And that could be decisions about whether to invest in a project. It could be a decision by a government whether to approve a project. A lot of the a lot of the roles for economists, yeah, there are a lot of roles in government or doing assignments for government, evaluating government projects or programs, for example, or policies and yeah. So did this did this policy where we were trying to encourage active transport or people to cycle to work or walk to work? One, was it successful? Two, what were the economic and social benefits of that? So did something like that for WA Transport. That's an example of that. So yes, I think it is about it's about applying the the tools of economists to 
inform a decision, which could be continuing a program, scrapping a program, a policy, or investing in a project or not investing in a project. Would you say some? Um, uh, you generally look at things on a macro level. So, whether it's a company or a country or international, whatever, it's it's generally the big picture that you look at. Yes and no. There are some economists who look at the big picture. There are economists who do macroeconomics, and that's looking at the GDP or inflation. But then there are also economists who do microeconomics, and they're the economists who are providing the analysis and advice regarding, you know how we talked about economic regulation before, regulation of prices of electricity, distributors i mean i guess what's so interesting um for me anyway it's like that um as soon as you get into the nitty-gritty of certain things then many other things start to apply as to what your decision may be or what your advice may be for instance human behavior would affect um you know electricity um usage you know like when when people you know what people's habits are that makes them uh, switch on certain things um, so is, is that right that you like is this where because economics seems to be a very diverse um, sort of industry um, so do you t- tend to find that people specialise in certain areas absolutely absolutely and, yeah. you, and you'd have to look at those different things of like human behaviour or other aspects that would affect um, the outcome of, of what kind of information you would give on a feasibility study say for instance it's interesting you mentioned human behaviour because there is this emerging field of economics called behavioural economics and I recorded an episode on that last year. I'll put a link to it in the show notes with uh, Brendan Markey-Towler. Yeah, cool. And that's a field of economics where you're trying to adjust for the fact that we don't always act in the most rational fashion. So there's an unpredictable nature that will forever be there as such. Yes, because we're human and we have all sorts of biases and we don't always do what a perfectly rational person would do. But the, the rational calculator model, homo economicus, I think it, they call it, I think that still has a lot of value and it yields strong predictions about how people will act. I mean, there's a law of demand. I mean, if price falls and you typically expect people to buy more of a good or service. And so economists will be trying to quantify those types of relationships and rely upon that. So rely as much upon rational consumers and investors as you can but recognising that psychology does play a role. Now, that's, a, yeah. that's difficult, right? <laughs> it's difficult. And I guess that's why it makes things um, uh, harder to pin down to being absolute. You know, there's always going to be varying opinions on different things because there, there are no absolutes. Absolutely, and psychology matters so much. And like, let's look at what's happening with the US uh, share market at the moment. I mean, practically every economist will say that it's, it's overvalued, There'll be there's bound to be a correction at some stage, but you just can't call that when that's going to occur. It looks it looks like it's set up for a correction at some time. Yeah. But who knows? Same with house prices in Australia, which have historically been well, they've grown they grew 
massively in the what from the was it the late nineties through the two thousands, and we've got one we've got some of the most expensive property in the world, and you'd argue that has to correct sometime. And economists, there are economists who have been forecasting corrections of different magnitudes for a long time, and we we did have a correction. I think was it twenty eighteen nineteen but not as large as some economists had forecast. And now Shane Oliver from AMP's come out and he's been brave enough to say he thinks house prices will fall 10% as a result of COVID. So we'll have to wait and see whether that's accurate or not. Well, it's interesting, I guess, because um, uh, with those changes and you know different um, behaviours that may affect markets, so we're recording this at the end of August in 2020. So a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so a change has been forced on the planet, like uh, a big change. What, um, what are your predictions for the recovery or the repercussions of uh, what might happen uh, from this pandemic? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a big question, Tim. <laughs> Incidentally, in my last episode, I, I provided some thoughts on uh, the new normal. Yeah, look, I think it's too soon to tell. I, I this is a shock that we've we just really haven't seen before, and we've got no experience with it. And the longer it goes on, the more damage is being done. I mean, I'm concerned about how many businesses are are just going to close down, never reopen, all the jobs that are lost. Mm. And would you go and invest in a new hospitality business? Knowing that there's a risk of a shutdown at some time in the future? I know, but I've heard of several uh, new restaurants opening in Brisbane, for instance, um, in the last few months, and I'm blown away. I thought that would be the last kind of business to open up, and clearly um, that's not just an knee-jerk reaction to what's happened. They would have been happening anyway, I guess, and have gone ahead regardless. Um, so hats off to those guys, and I really hope they do well. But... Um, I would imagine that would be a really hard thing to do. However, I've got friends who've booked there and they say they're booked up for three months. You know, So some of these places are doing extremely well, which is the last thing you would expect. Um, again, we're in Queensland, so even within Australia, who's had a really good and lucky response to this pandemic, Queensland has done better than most states as well. So maybe that's a reflection on... Brisbane, um, uh, which uh, hopefully will stay that way. Uh, but it's surprising nonetheless. Yes. So we're lucky here in Queensland. I think it's partly due to the fact that mining and agriculture play a larger role in our state economy than other state economies. Yeah. That's part of it. It's not the whole story. So in the same way that Western Australia are in a fairly good position? Yes, they've recovered quite nicely, yeah. I mean, everyone's still down on where they were. Yeah. But, yeah, WA, I think, has snapped back better than uh, than most places. I'm where trying to remember what you – sorry, I'm just trying to remember where we were, to no, what you asked. So, like, yeah. with, with, um, I mean, like I say, it was the predictions as to what might happen uh, with, um, you know, the reaction to the pandemic. I mean – and putting my pen is worth with that, like which is along the lines of what you said. Everything, you know, if it goes up, it's going to come down. If it goes down, it's going to come up. So things don't ever stay the same. And that seems to be uh, not just um, in 
commerce or finance, whatever, it seems to be like a law of nature that you know things tend to go up and down, a seasonal sort of thing. Um, and uh, undoubtedly, there's a big drop in certain things. Some things have done really well, you know, homewares, and uh, I think uh, uh, booze sales have done pretty well. Um, but undoubtedly, there'll be a correction of some sort. It'll all pass, will all carry on at some point and make it through. Some people better than others and some countries better than others, but no doubt we will come through the other side. Absolutely. That was exactly the point I was going to make. Um, what you're talking about is a phenomenon called regression to the mean or I reversion feeling, to the mean. I had a feeling that was it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's... Uh, that's relied upon in statistics. That phenomena. It is a natural. It is a natural. Uh, th- there's a way of things balancing out. Ultimately, uh, an action will get a reaction, etc. Uh, or equal force meets equal force. You know, to bring it back to an equilibrium. Yeah. So if we think about the economy, what we would see is that, uh, well, if you've got a depressed economy, then theoretically you would have. Businesses trying to, they would lower their prices to try and boost demand. You'd have workers being willing to work for less to get jobs. Mm. And so theoretically, you should be able to get back to an equilibrium with full employment, so to speak. But that can take a long time. I think, I mean, like uh, I'm I'm sure that most people are sitting tight and doing whatever they can until it's sort of, you know, it does recover, and some people will change what they do as part of that recovery. I think it's a time of reflection for a lot of people who are forced into making changes, who haven't got a job, whose business have closed down, and it has to make you think differently. And that's not always a bad thing without being um, fickle, because I know a lot of people are in, you know, dire straits and really struggling. Um, but, you know, those forces that get, those, those, sorry, those changes that get forced upon you are sometimes work out for the best. I know. Stoic philosophy, for instance, the obstacle is the way, which we talk about amongst ourselves, is, is perfect for this um, this kind of time. And Marcus Aurelius um, you now talk, talked about this uh, in his writings. So it's it's interesting. It's nothing that people haven't faced before at some point. It's just new to us. Well, we were talking the other day about how you've noticed that demand for books on Stoic philosophy has <laughs> soared during this time. <laughs> True, true. I, I bought a couple and a couple um, of others weren't available. So, uh, but, but it's still out there, the, the nuts and bolts of all of this, you know, like for instance, if something is beyond your control, don't worry about that. Just worry about what is within your sphere of control. And that makes a lot of sense. And, you, you know, that's, that's something that obviously all of us can apply to this. Um, and, and if it makes you look at things differently, then that's a good thing. Okay, Tim, we're getting close to time. That's been a pretty wide-ranging conversation and it's a great conversation where you can throw in a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Love that. Well, I think, I think you've justified your uh, services to, uh, to the community, Gene, and uh, so you, you, you clearly um, give a good service. Uh, I think I'm off to clean a few telephones. <laughs> okay, any other questions or any other thoughts, Tim? Probably, but uh, I think um, I think that's enough to digest for the moment, Gina. We'll we'll cover those another time, I'm sure. That sounds good. Tim Hughes from Urban Ergo. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Gene. It was a pleasure.
We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.